Romans 8, 15 to 27. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. This is the word of the Lord. If you keep that open, we're going to look through that passage together. Uh, So words, words are everywhere, aren't they? Uh, We are bombarded with them constantly. If it's not social media or the television, um, when we meet with friends over coffee, um, meetings at work, excuse me, um, report writing, uh, teachers marking essays. Even our church services are full of them, aren't they? In our songs, our liturgy, um, in our sermons. Uh, I even consider sitting down and um, letting you have some peace and quiet. But fortunately, um, we've had a little bit of that during our prayers. But sometimes words are exhausting. Sometimes we need to have a break from words. Sometimes we are in a situation where we have no capacity or ability to use words. And I think God in his wisdom knows that we need to communicate in ways that don't always involve words. Perhaps it's why he's given us so many beautiful symbols in our worship, our communion, the giving and receiving um, of uh, bread and wine, um, that amazing symbol of Jesus' powerful love for us. Or baptism, the immersion of water, that wonderful gift of God's grace, of that symbol of new life. About oil, a wonderful uh, symbol of anointing and healing. Or the cross, the ultimate symbol of love and sacrifice. 
So as many of you know, we'll have, we've been looking at prayer over the last few weeks, and today we're going to look at prayer without words. But before we dive into this, it's always worth remembering who our foundation is and how we come to pray. What is our foundation for our prayer? And Richard talked last week about how Jesus is our foundation and how Jesus brings us to our Father God. Um, And this passage um, today picks up on that. And if you look back at verses 15 and 16, we see that we are children of God. We're adopted into God's family. It talks about sons here, but that's purely because sons were the heirs in that culture. But we are children of our Heavenly Father. This is the closest of relationships. It's not that we're subjects of a king or servants to a master, but we are children of our Heavenly Father. And then the passage tells us how it's possible. It's because we are heirs, we are co-heirs with Christ. Because of the reckless love of God through Jesus Christ in his death and his resurrection, all God the Son shares with the Father and the Spirit, he shares with us too. The love, joy, the glory that the Godhead shares together, we can experience and be part of. And then the passage tells us that we too can experience this, but it tells us how we can experience it. In verse 15, it talks about the spirit of sonship, the spirit of adoption. By the spirit, we cry. And it's the spirit that doesn't make us a slave to fear. It's the spirit that gives us this ability. The Holy Spirit beckons us, woos us, enables us to be born into this amazing relationship. Jesus makes that way on the cross. He makes that way open but it's the Holy Spirit who brings us into that relationship with the Godhead. It's the Spirit who makes us aware and continually reminds us that we are God's children. We can call him Abba, Father. And that's the same Aramaic name that Jesus used. It means Father, but it actually means it's more intimate than that. It means Daddy or Papa. It's that incredibly intimate relationship. And Jesus used that Um, And he taught his disciples that that's how they were also to call God. So we come before our Father, wooed by the Spirit and won by the Son. And this is the foundation for our relationship, and it's the foundation for our prayer life. And I think it's a great place to start this morning. But we're now going to pick up on the groaning. Now, I don't know whether you noticed that there's a lot of groaning going on in this passage Um, and groaning or sighing we can look at and one writer describes it as a symphony of sighs and we're going to look at this because it actually gives us the basis for thinking about prayer without words or wordless prayer so in this passage we have uh, three groaning we have the groaning of creation the groaning of the church and the groaning of the spirit so firstly verse 22 We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. The groaning or sighing of creation. It's not its death throes, it's its labor pains, we're told. It's a painful anticipation of something wonderful that's going to happen. Something wonderful is on its way. 
Now, although much of creation we know is breathtakingly beautiful, we also see that much of it is subject to decay and death. And this passage talks about creation longing for its restoration, longing for its redemption. And the words used here, it's like creation is standing on its tiptoes, waiting and watching for its restoration, but also for our restoration, so we can be the stewards that God intends us to be for his world. So that's the groaning of creation. Now, most human beings will groan at the pain of the world. You know, we look at our creation around us, and it pains us when we see the brokenness and the mess. But for the Christian, for us, there is a tension. So we live in this present reality of pain. And the second groaning it talks about here is of the church. It's about the longing for for creation and also for our own bodies to be free from sin and suffering. We share in the pain, but the tension for us is that we also share in the hope. And we have a confidence because we know and we already experience God's work in our world. So verse 23 and 24, it says, Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons or children, the redemption of, this bod- of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. This is not an empty hope we have. We know we have a glorious promise of a wonderful future beyond our imaginations, already experienced in part because of the work of the Spirit, the first fruits here, but not in full. It's a bit like a deposit or the waiter giving us a taste of the wine before he pours out a full glass. And like creation, we are also on our tiptoes, waiting and eagerly anticipating um, our renewal and the renewal of the earth. So that's the first two groanings, creation and the church. And then we come to the third groaning, and this is what we're going to major on particularly this morning. It's the Spirit's groaning for us, because this is the answer to the groaning of the church. Now, as the church, we could just wait with patient endurance, but we're not meant to do this. We're not meant to just sit back and wait. God wants us to be active. We're meant to be working, and part of this working is praying. And this is our really key point here. Our groans and sighs, the groans and the sighs of the church, don't have to be shapeless or empty grumblings. We don't just have to sit and say, How awful is this? Our pain, our groans, our sighs can be turned to prayer through the power of the Holy Spirit. In verse 26, it says, In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. Now, although there's a connection here between those three groanings, the Spirit is different in nature and purpose. The Spirit who lives within us prays to the Father and expresses the present pain and the longing for the restored promised future. The Spirit expresses the longing for God's kingdom to come on earth as in heaven. 
But what does this groaning of the Spirit really mean? Is it the fact that we just don't know what to pray for? That there's too much pain around us? Sometimes, I don't know about you, but I look around, I think, where on earth do I start to pray? But the focus here is not what we pray for, because actually we often do know what we should be praying for, even if it feels overwhelming. But the focus here is that we don't know what we ought to be praying for, or how to pray as we ought. And why? I think there's probably a number of reasons. We probably don't know what would really be best. We probably don't really understand what God's will might be. We probably don't really understand God's character. Or it might be that we are in real deep suffering and finding it almost impossible to pray as we ought. Language breaks down often in the attempt to express our deepest emotions and our truest love. For all the deepest things in humans, inarticulate utterance can be often be the most self-revealing. Grief can say more in a sob and a tear than in words. Love finds its tongue in the light of an eye and in the grasp of a hand. And the pain which rises from the depths of the soul cannot always be forced into the narrow framework of human language. And I think there's a really good example of this in the Old Testament um, if we look at the life of Hannah in 1 Samuel 1 verse 13, which is on page 271 if you wanted to follow it. Now for Hannah, her longing for a child was too much to bear and she was only able to express the depth of her burden and her longings. And for some of us, it may not be um, the pain of childlessness. There may be other pains going on in our hearts. And I think Hannah's words and, her, and how she prays here can be really helpful. 1 Samuel 1, verse 11. And Hannah made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on her head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli, the priest, observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk, and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. I always think it's a bit sad that Eli just presumed she was drunk. It um, made me think how easy it is to judge each other um, when it comes to our prayers. And I often think, poor, you know, this poor woman had enough going on without somebody accusing her of something that she hadn't been doing. But when we're faced with the pain and misery of the world around us, the pain in our own lives, we may find that there's no words left to express our loss our sense of futility, perhaps a longing for something better, for something restored and renewed. And I wonder how many of us have been left speechless at a loss for words with a deep pain and longing within us just for the pain to go, for something to take its place. 
And this isn't just in a personal situation like Hannah's. I remember a friend once saying to me how she'd read an article and she had felt such a pain and sense of injustice about what she read that she had no words. She just had anger. She just had frustration. So how do we deal with this pain, this personal pain or our pain for the world? So often we feel like we have to be in the right mood to pray, that we have to be joyful or peaceful or have the right words. And in one of our recent Alpha sessions, when we were looking at prayer, we heard some words from a Benedictine monk, and he really helpfully said that what he brings to God is his most dominant feeling in his heart. And that emotion, whether positive or negative, can become his fuel to prayer. It means that grief or anger or frustration can fuel our prayers. Sometimes it's our emotions rather than our words which need to speak. And that's what Hannah did. She might have used some words at the start, but she took her pain and she took her wordless prayers to God. But what about the knowing what we ought to pray for, or to pray as we ought, to know what God's will is, or what God's character? And I think the key thing in this passage is where God is in all of this. If you look at verse 26, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Amazingly, the Spirit himself intercedes. He intercedes for us. He is in us. The Spirit who has wooed us and brought us to the Father, the one who reminds us of our place as God's children, the one who has kindled that raw emotion in our hearts in the first place. The same spirit helps us in our weakness. Or literally, it says, helps our weaknesses, that state of um, having an unrestored body, an unredeemed body that we're in at the moment. The spirit comes alongside us, just like an advocate does in a court of law. If it was not for the spirit of God, I probably wouldn't even pray in the right general direction. It's only by the Spirit that we can pray, your kingdom come, and be confident that it will. It's only by the Spirit that we know that the pain of the world around us does not signify the death of the world, but the hope that new creation is coming. And I wonder if you've ever thought of it this way. Beneath our groanings is the groaning of God praying to God. He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. God prays to God through us. I don't know about you, I find that completely mind-blowing. God prays to God through us. And the prayer of God is so deep, it needs no words. So under the groaning of creation for redemption, 
there's the groaning of the church. But underneath all of this is the wordless groaning of God praying to God on behalf of the church. And because God knows the mind of God, the Spirit helps us to know what to pray for, helps us to know how to pray, helps us to know what God's will is. So what does all of this mean for us? So firstly, I think this passage tells us that we need to understand our position before God as Christians. That in Christ we come to the Father as our daddy, not as our boss, not as our headmaster. He longs for us to interact with him like we would do with a perfect human father, with a deep love and trust, with an honesty and openness, and allowing ourselves to be and to be loved. So first, we can come to God as our father, as our daddy. Secondly, I think it means that God wants us to look at his creation and the humanity around us and wants us to long for the restoration and redemption of our world. I think God wants us to know that there's hope for our world, that there is hope for our fellow human beings, for our friends, our family, for our colleagues, because of the work that Christ has done, restoring, healing, redeeming. And that this longing causes us to turn to action and to prayer. And then thirdly, I think God wants us to pray. He wants us to communicate with him about what we see around us, but that we don't need to worry when we don't have the right words to pray. With our own parents, our own children, you wouldn't expect to prepare a speech before you walk into a room or pick up the phone. And we can offer to God our emotions and our longings to him. He's more interested in our honesty than our English grammar, more interested in our time than our preparation. He's more interested in our love than our abilities. So God wants us to pray. And then fourthly, I think it means that God wants us to learn to feel his spirit working within us, speaking to us, prompting us, helping us to love the world around us, to see its pain and feel its brokenness like he does. And that that would prompt us to feel, to cry, to pray, to call to God, to work and to act to heal and restore because that's God's business that is what God does he is our God who heals and restores and it means that the tears that we have for ourselves or our family our friends or our communities instead of them falling into hopeless oblivion we direct our tears heavenwards instead we're learning to hear God praying to God in the depths of our soul but then fifth, I think it also means that God enables us to pray. He doesn't just leave us on our own with that pain. He enables us. And there are plenty of times when we can articulate our prayers, and that's good. Words are good. But sometimes all we can do is be still in God's presence and allow the Spirit to pray. Now, although this passage doesn't talk about this, some of you will be familiar with speaking in tongues, one of the spiritual gifts that God gives. That heavenly love language 
given by God to help us in prayer. And this gift can be really helpful, especially when we don't always know what to pray or how to pray, but desperately want to. And there are times when I'm absolutely at loss for words in English, and I want to pray, and sometimes I revert to using the gift of tongues. And it means that my heart or my spirit can carry on praying to God when I don't need to worry about finding the right word. But this type of prayer is not simply about speaking in tongues or contemplation or silent prayer. And I think because words have been, we've become so word-focused in the West, there has been a renewed interest in silent prayer and, and contemplation. But the type of prayer talked about in this passage is not just the absence of words or the use of a heavenly tongue. We need, to, we need space to hear the words spoken by God the Spirit. It doesn't necessarily mean sitting quietly. These prayers might be in the midst of noise. They might be in the middle of words. When we watch the news, when we're at work, when we're driving or walking, when the kids are hungry and screaming around us. The key to this is that these are spirit-inspired prayers. They are Abba prayers. They're prayers that know the Father through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's where we're caught up in the inner life of God. And one writer puts it like this. This prayer hints at something deeper than merely praying in the way God wants or approves. God's own life, love, and energy are involved in this process. The Christian, precisely at the point of weakness and uncertainty, of inability and struggle, becomes the place at which the triune God is revealed in person. The Christian becomes the place at which the triune God is revealed in person. It's about how we pray. Intimate prayer knows to, knows to call God Abba, Father. This type of prayer starts with no idea of what to ask or for even what words to use. We know God, but we do not know what or how to pray, and this is fine. Prayer is security in God, but it's also insecurity. The Spirit can assure us of our place with God as his children, can assure us of the work of Christ in bringing us to the Father, and can help us to pray in a way that God, the heart searcher, knows, hears, and understands. Their prayers, prayers which may have words, their prayers which may not. And finally, be encouraged. God's Spirit continually reaches out to embrace and encourage us, to lead us on to reassure us that we're not praying alone. He identifies with our groans, with the pain of the world and with the church. And he shares the longing of that final freedom. And as the church, we're called to share in the pain and the hope. We're not to stand apart from the pain of the world. And our calling, our role, is to pray where the world is at pain and to pray in God's kingdom. 
We're called to pray for signs and foretastes of God's fresh beauty, to bring it to birth within the world as signs of hope. And the reason we don't stand apart is because God doesn't stand apart. He is right there, right here, in the midst of his pain by the Spirit. And our challenge this week, I would love our challenge this week to actually listen and ask God what is on his heart. So when you read the news, when you hear news from a friend, talk to God, listen to the Holy Spirit within, ask God how we ought to pray. What is God saying? What emotions or thoughts grow in you when you read that news, when you hear that news from a friend and take them back to God. And I'm just going to finish by reading a verse from Ezekiel, which might help us to understand a little bit more. It's, it's a little bit like heart surgery. And Ezekiel in, in Ezekiel chapter 36, it says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. Words can sometimes bring us in line, my heart in line with what I'm saying. But words can be meaningless when our hearts are far away. We may be talking about prayers that are wordless, but they're not meaningless. And I wonder whether God is less happy with my wordy prayers, with my heart of stone, and what he longs for is my heart of flesh and prayers that are wordless. Maybe God just occasionally wants me to stop talking and to listen to him and to listen to what his spirit is saying and to respond. So I'm going to stop talking and we're going to spend some time listening in the quiet and responding in worship. And I'm going to pray very briefly, and then we're going to have some quiet, and I'll hand over. Holy Spirit, give us freedom and boldness in our Father God's presence as we stand with Christ. Stir up prayers in our hearts. Teach us how we ought to pray. Pray for us.